invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Leviticus 16. Now, there are a lot of feast days or festivals in the Old Testament. They're known as holy days. That's where we get our English word holiday from. But the most holy day of all in the Israelites' calendar was not actually a feast day. It was actually a day of fasting. It was called the Day of Atonement, known also as Yom Kippur. And we know that this is the most holy day on Israel's calendar because its importance is highlighted in multiple ways. Uh, If the Jews wanted to highlight how important something was, they wouldn't get out a highlighter. They would stick the words or paragraphs or sections in the center. And we find in the center of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, chapter 16. And it's the center of the Pentateuch. It's the central book, the the third one of five in the Pentateuch. It's highlighted that way. And also, this Day of Atonement takes place, as we're told at the end of the chapter, which we won't read, but on the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month. And both seven and ten are numbers of perfection or completeness. So the seventh month, the tenth day, is when this most holy day takes place. So let's read the first 22 verses of this chapter together and see how Moses spells out in detail a set of sacrificial rituals which uniquely picture the atoning work of Jesus our Savior and the results of his atoning work. Leviticus 16, reading verses 1 through 22, and we'll also read the last verse of the chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, And one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, And bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. 
He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And he shall do so for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And then verse 34, This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. There ends our reading of God's word. Let us pray for his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for these words Words penned by Moses which depict rituals performed back before Christ walked the earth. Show us, Father, how this work pictured the atoning work of our Savior, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you are going camping, it can be helpful to have an overview of the layout of the land, of the layout of the campground. That's why provincial parks provide you with a map of the campground when you arrive. Well, at this stage in Israel's life, they were camping perpetually. And it's helpful to have an understanding of the basic layout of their camp to understand the rituals that are taking place on this day. Think of five concentric circles. In the center is the most holy place where God himself dwells, the innermost room of the tabernacle. Then the second zone is the holy place, the front room in the tabernacle where the showbread is and the altar of incense. Then there's the third circle, the courtyard around the tabernacle where the people would bring their sacrifices. And the fourth zone where the Israelites have pitched their tents around the temple courtyard. And then the fifth zone, the vast, empty, sprawling wilderness. The sacrificial rituals that would take place on every ordinary day throughout the year would cover the three middle zones of Israelite's camp. The holy place, the courtyard, and the tent area where the Israelites kept their animals. 
But the sacrificial rituals which take place on this Day of Atonement, this special once-a-year day, cover all five zones from the most holy place all the way out to zone five, the farthest reaches of the wilderness. Let's go back in time and see what Good Friday would have looked like 2,024 years or more ago if Israel was actually following the directives set forth by Moses here in Leviticus 16. Because these rituals depict the work of Jesus our Savior on the cross and the results of that work. Let's look together, first of all, at the inapproachable presence of this holy God who dwells in the center of the camp. And secondly, that putrid smell of sin that pervades the entire camp. And third, the pardoning grace of God who removes that sin far from his presence. First of all, the inapproachable presence of a holy God at the center of this camp. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 16, we are right away alerted to the reality of the blazing white-hot holiness of God, which consumes any impurity, any sin that enters his presence. Look at the context, the time in which God spoke these words to Moses. Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Moses is hinting at what happened six chapters before in chapter 10. Two nephews of Moses, Nadab and Abihu, tried to approach the presence of the most holy God in the center of the camp. But they did so when they weren't supposed to. And they probably did so with wine or fermented drink on their breath. And fire from the Lord went out and consumed them. You'll recall that the Lord was present with his people in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he would lead them with that cloud if they loved him and obeyed him. But if they defy him, flames would leap out from that cloud and destroy the sinner. And that's what just happened with Nadab and Abihu. These two priests disobediently entered into the presence of God and flames leapt forth from that cloud consumed them and they dropped dead and their corpses were carried outside the camp. The background to this chapter is the startling, the shocking death of the two sons of the high priest Aaron. As Moses is giving these instructions for the day of atonement, a solemn atmosphere has settled over the Israelite camp. The procedures that God describes for these rituals on the Day of Atonement show how holy he is and how he won't permit sin in his campground. Look at the various procedures that show how God is holy. In verse 2, we read the Lord saying to Moses something about the timing of approaching his presence. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the most holy place inside the veil, lest he die. You see, meeting with this holy God is not a casual thing. You don't just waltz into the presence of a dignitary whenever you want. There are set times when you can see important officials. 
And in a similar way, you don't just waltz into the presence of this holy God in their midst whenever you want. There are set times when you can come into the innermost room where his presence dwells. That only happens one time a year by only one of the millions of people in the Israelite camp, namely the high priest. So the timing in which the innermost room can be approached, God can be approached, is an indication of his holiness. Once a year, by one man, the high priest. Another indication of God's holiness is found in verse 4, with the linen garments the high priest had to wear. Normally, he'd be dressed in bright, colorful robes, blue, red, purple, ornamented with gemstones, and would have bells on the tassels of his garment. But look at verse 4. And what he's got to wear on this one day a year. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash. And with a linen turban he shall be attired. The Hebrew word for linen refers specifically to white linen. When the high priest is going to get dressed for his duties on this special day... He is going to be dressed from head to toe in pure white. Off go the colorful priestly robes and on come these pure white garments. These white garments symbolize the purity that is necessary if you're going to approach this holy God. Think of Zechariah 3 verse 3. Joshua the high priest was standing before the Lord in this vision Zechariah saw. But he was dressed in clothes that were filthy, that were stained with sin. And the Lord ordered that Joshua the high priest take off the filthy clothes. And then we read this about the symbolism of that act. Behold, said the Lord, I have taken your iniquity away from you with the removal of the filthy clothes. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. God is teaching his people that if you're going to be in the presence of his his holiness, you need clean clothes, the white robes that God himself provides. And then a final way we see the holiness of God here is in verses 12 to 13 with the incense that the high priest has to bring in to the holy place. You see, this incense played a role, yes, in relation to the sense of smell. It symbolically covered the putrid smell of sin and literally covered the smell of death with all the blood and animal guts and carcasses. But this incense also played a role on this day in terms of the sense of sight. You see, the holy God may not be seen by an unholy or sinful people. Think of Exodus 33, verse 20. As God was about to show Moses his glory, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That's why there are curtains hanging in the front of the temple. Or the tabernacle. And then in front of the most holy place is another curtain. Blocking from view God's presence in the cloud. And the mercy seat or the Ark of the Covenant. But what about on this special day? Aaron's duties require him to go behind that veil. And enter the innermost room. The most holy place. 
Well, look at verses 12 and 13 of our text. What is Aaron to do? He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar, and with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, he shall bring it inside the veil into the most holy place. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Why? That the cloud of incense may cover or conceal the mercy seat. That the cloud of incense may conceal the glory and the presence of God from Aaron's eyes, lest he die. You see, not even the high priest is permitted to see God's presence dwelling upon the ark or the mercy seat. Not even that once a year. This incense creates like a smokescreen, a third curtain, blocking God's holy presence from view. God is so holy, and we in and of ourselves are so unholy, that we cannot approach him, or we'll be consumed like Nadab and Abihu. So that's the holy God who dwells at the center of the camp. And the problem with trying to approach him is that there's this putrid presence of sin permeating the entire camp. Sin stinks, and God can't stand the smell of it. Amos 5 verse 21, we read of the Lord decrying the sinful ways the Israelites have observed his feasts and were living their lives. And he says, your assemblies are a stench to me. I cannot stand the smell of them. You know, sin smells like skunk to God. Anyone like the smell of skunk? I mean, skunk is so bad. It is so putrid. It, you can plug your nose, but you're still going to taste it because of the sulfur compounds in the air. It gets in your lungs, gets on your tongue. You can't escape it. It is so noxious, so nauseating. It can even induce vomiting. Think for a moment, those of you who have pets, if your pet got sprayed by a skunk, you going to let it in your house? Not me. Not God. God's not going to let skunk gunk smell, the smell of sin into his presence. Now it's easy for the Israelites to have thought well, Nadab and Abihu they are obviously bad. Look at how brazenly they sinned. We're not that bad. Yeah, we might grumble and complain about cornflakes every day for breakfast, but you know, we're not brazenly disobedient like them. God loves us. He just rescued us from Egypt. We're good people. We got Abram's genes. But no, what do these sacrificial rituals teach? They show that the smell of sin permeates every person in the camp. Everyone from Aaron and the priests down to ordinary Isaac and Isabel are all sinful. And we see this. Because before Aaron could go and make atonement for the sins of all the people, he had to first make atonement for his own sin and that of his household. Look at verse 3. Aaron has to first atone for his sin. This is how Aaron shall come into the holy place. With the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And then verse 6 specifies who these offerings are for. 
Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. It's a good reminder that everyone, even the leaders, from pastors and elders and deacons to their household, we're not above anyone else. We have our own sin to confess before we call anyone else to repent of their sin. We have to believe God's promises before we call you to. We have to obey his commands, call ourselves to obey his commands before we call you to. Go hack the securities, in-home security systems of Pastor Prasad or I or the elders, and you'll see we're sinners like you. We need to go to the Savior and be, have our sin atoned for. Think of Aaron. He had an awfully heinous sin to be atoned for. What did he do not that long ago? As leader, he led the people of God in false worship after building a golden calf. He better have his sin atoned for. And he must, and he does. And only then, in verse 5, can he proceed to make atonement for the congregation of Israel. And he shall take, verse 5, from the congregation of the children of Israel, two of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. It's this instruction to select two goats that makes the Day of Atonement's rituals distinctive. In all the sacrifices offered throughout the rest of the year, the animals that are brought to the priest are killed. But look at what is to happen with these two goats. Verses 7 through 10. Let's read that. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to be let go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. On this special day of atonement, one of the goats is sacrificed but the other is sent away. Let's consider first the role of this first goat, the one that is sacrificed. It's referred to as a sin offering. We read in verse 15, Then Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. When you read through the book of Leviticus, you read all these instructions about what to do with blood, how to collect it in bowls, how to take it and sprinkle it in front of the altar, sprinkle it on the horns of the altar, on the mercy seat, and seven times sprinkle it on the ground before the mercy seat. Atoning for sin is literally a bloody business. And that might make us wonder, as it makes many of these New atheists say, Isn't your God ghastly and vampire-like? He's got this thirst for blood. No, that is not what this is about. Our God has not got a bloodlust. Think of Romans 6 verse 23. That explains what this is about. The wages of sin is death. And think of Leviticus 17 verse 11. The life of a creature is in its blood. 
You see, behind the blood of these sacrificial animals lies the biological reality that its life is going to be taken in place of the Israelite worshiper. By the shedding of this blood, God is showing us the cost of our sin is our life or that of a substitute. The consequence of our sin is death. Our death or the death of a substitute. Well, going back to verse 15, we need to re- we read something that must be done with this blood on this day that never gets done any other day of the year. On this day of atonement, the blood of this first goat must be brought right into the center of the Israelite camp, into the most holy place. And that makes this a dramatic moment. Tension fills the air at this time. Everyone remembers what just happened to Nadab and Abihu when they tried to enter the most holy place. You can imagine the Israelites are on edge and the words of Isaiah 33 verse 14 seem to be a fitting description of what the atmosphere must have been like at this moment. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? The question that hangs in the air as Aaron is going to go into the most holy places. Will God accept this sacrifice? How do we know that this blood is going to be effective in appeasing God's wrath? How do we know it will remove the stench of sin? How do we know Aaron will come out alive? Nadab and Abihu didn't. That's the key question. If Aaron comes out alive, then we know that that blood has been effective in atoning for sin. It means God accepted the blood of the substitute as payment in place of Aaron and the Israelites that he represents. So after entering the most holy place with the blood of that first goat, he proceeds to do something very different with the second goat. The second goat is referred to as the live goat. And what happens with this second goat takes place after sin has been atoned for. And in this, God is giving a powerful visual demonstration of the end result of his atoning work. The end result of the high priest's atoning work. That brings us to the third point, the purifying power of God's pardoning grace. Let's read about this second goat and what Aaron needs to do with it in verses 21 and 22. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it. Look at the repetition here of the word all. He shall confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins putting them on the head of the goat, and he shall send it away into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. Three times the word all is used here. And each time it's used in connection with a different word for sin. And those three different words are not just synonyms. They get at different aspects of sin. The iniquity refers to the depraved nature of our heart where all our sinful thoughts and words and actions come from. 
The word transgression is the strongest word for sin. Think of trespassing where you intentionally step over a boundary. Willful sin. And then the word sin, just the general term for sin, where we miss the mark by not doing what we ought or doing what we know we ought not to do. God is saying, through this atoning work, I will provide atonement for all your sin. That includes all kinds of sin. There is no sin so small that I can just mm, overlook it. It needs to be atoned for. And there is no sin so gross, so glaring, so despicable that God will say, that's disgusting. I will not atone for that. You can keep that. No. I will atone for all kinds of your sin. Any category of sin, no matter how rebellious. And I will atone for all of your sins. There is no number of sins too high where God says, now you've crossed the line and now I'm done. No forgiveness for you. No, all of your sins will be carried away by this scapegoat covered by the blood. Carried away where? Outside the camp, far away into the wilderness. This represents the furthest reaches of the earth. As far from the presence of the camp as you can imagine. Think of David in Psalm 103 and how he talks about the geography of forgiveness. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the greatness of God's love. It reaches from the heights of heaven down to the depths of earth, takes our sin, and removes it from his presence infinitely far. As far as east is from west. Never will it be recalled. Never will he haul it back and hold it against us. Through this scapegoat, God shows us that the forgiveness he offers is irrevocable and absolutely irretrievable. After it's covered by the blood, it's gone for good. As an additional demonstration of how sin is completely destroyed by this atoning work, we read, if we look at verse 27, which we didn't read, that after entering the most holy place to make atonement, Aaron's got to take the carcass of the sin offering and carry it outside the camp and completely burn it up. And that shows how every vestige of sin is removed and the worshiper is purified. White garments are what we wear when we are cleansed by the blood of the high of the of the high priest Jesus. That is truly good news. But here's the thing, looking back at Leviticus 16. When we get to the New Testament, we read that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What are we to make of what we just read in Leviticus 16 then? Well, just as you're not going to let a little league hockey player substitute for you on the NHL team, the National Hockey League. So God is not going to let an animal, a mere animal, serve as a substitute when it comes to paying for a human's sin. God's justice system requires that man sinned, therefore man must pay for sin. 
These sacrifices taught that one day sin will be removed from a fit, by a fitting substitute. One who is fully human like us. And also perfectly human unlike us. No sins of his own that need to be atoned for. Therefore he's able to take our sins upon himself and pay for them. And the name of this fitting substitute is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Consider all the similarities between what took place on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and what takes place on Good Friday when Jesus dies. Just as Aaron had to enter the most holy place on this day, so Hebrews 9 tells us, when Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation, and he entered the most holy place, the presence of the Father himself, in heaven. Think also of the solo nature of the high priest's work. Just as Aaron had to enter the most holy place alone, unaccompanied by anyone else, so Jesus, our Savior, went to the cross alone. In the upper room, the night before he was arrested and crucified, he said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. One of his disciples betrayed him. One of his closest friends denied him three times. And all 12 of them deserted him. Alone he went to the cross. Then there's also the necessity of blood atonement. Just as Aaron entered the most holy place with the blood of the goat, so Jesus entered with his own blood. Hebrews 9.12 He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, though. He entered the most holy place with his own blood. And then think of the Rituals that took place outside the camp. Just as Aaron had to carry the carcass of those animals outside the camp and send the scapegoat outside the camp into the wilderness, so Jesus was led out of the holy city as he bore our sin. Hebrews 13 draws this parallel. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus, as scapegoat, carries our sin upon his shoulders outside the holy city of Jerusalem, outside the presence of a holy God, because sin has no place in God's presence. But then we also note a couple key differences the frequency of the rituals on the Day of Atonement took place repeatedly every year again. Repeatedly, these sacrifices are pounding away at the problem of sin, but like a sledgehammer on concrete that won't break, so those sacrifices tried to deal with the problem of sin, but didn't break it. But Jesus broke down the problem of sin with one powerful blow when he offered himself on the cross. Not with the blood of goats and calves, writes the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 12, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Why was Jesus' sacrifice a once-for-all sacrifice? Because he is that fitting substitute 
that sinless sacrifice, he didn't have to die for his own sins first. Otherwise, his death would have just atoned for himself. But because he's sinless, he could take our sin upon himself, carry it to the cross, and pay for the sin of all who believe in him. That's just what he did on this day we remember as Good Friday. And we should pause and ask, how do we know if Jesus' sacrifice was actually effective in removing sin and God's wrath against sin? Well, as we asked of Aaron, so we ask of Jesus. Will he come out alive? And yes, he does. Up from the grave he arose three days later. That's how we know Jesus' sacrifice was effective in removing God's wrath against sin. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes. So important is this reality of Christ's resurrection that it's something we celebrate not once a year, but 52 times a year. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, a holy day where we remember this great act of atonement. And what's the result of it? We can come into the presence of God uninhibited, Think of the author of Hebrews again. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He opened it by a new and living way through the veil that is his flesh. You see, we can come into the presence of a holy God. Look at the the progress of redemption. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were booted from God's presence as they were evicted from the Garden. And you work through the storyline of Scripture and we see God drawing closer and closer and living in an increasingly permanent way with his people. First he meets sporadically at altars with his people. Then he dwells among his people in a temporary tent with a pillar of cloud. Then in a more permanent building called a temple made of stone and wood. Then in the incarnation, he dwells among his people in human flesh, which we can see, touch, and smell, and hear. And ten days after he ascended into heaven, Jesus moved in even closer to live with his people, moving into the hearts of every believer by sending his spirit to dwell within his children, who are now his temple. And in the new creation, God will again dwell with us as he did with Adam and Eve, but it will even be better We'll get to see God in all his glory, uninhibited. We'll get to see Jesus our Savior in the flesh in all his dazzling beauty and glory. And there will never be an eviction order because never will there be sin in us or sin entering this new creation. So, brothers and sisters, our God is holy. He doesn't tolerate sin. And if we try to approach him when we're stained by sin, we'll be consumed. Every one of us has a smell of sin upon us, though. The question is, has it been atoned for? Have you come to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and laid your hands on his head, confessed your sin, and embraced his atoning work on the cross? If you don't do that, you have to pay the penalty yourself on the day of judgment. And it'll take all eternity for you to pay eternity in hell so come to jesus and if you've come to jesus you can be assured his sacrifice is paid for all your sins his resurrection proves the sacrifice was accepted 
And you can be assured God doesn't hold a single sin against you. 1 Peter 2.23, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, carried it outside the camp, removing it as far as east is from west. And he'll never hang it back in front of your face or haul it back to mind. That's the good news of what makes, uh, what seems like a bad Friday, the best Friday ever. Let's pray.